Welcome everyone, and welcome to another episode of In Media Res, the podcast that we create from the Research School of Media Studies. And today we have another guest from the special event that we're organizing today with Nika, the School for uh, Cultural Analysis. In the last three episodes of this season, we are looking for the soft skills that can be linked to positioning yourself as a researcher, both in the field of cultural analysis and, of course, the field of media studies. And I have a very special guest uh, with me today coming from Utrecht University. I'm going to ask to shortly introduce themselves. Good day. My name is Karen Van Ness. I'm Associate Professor in Media and Cultural Studies and Project Lead Humanities of the Data School. Thank you. Welcome, Karen. Um, so um, let's talk a bit about your academic path, because you're uh, right now at the level of associate. But maybe start from the moment of the maybe bachelor or master's even. How did you get to the position that you're at right now? So I think it, start, it started um, in positions as teaching assistants. So um, at a certain point, I was in my master. I ended up doing, well, I started out with a bachelor in communication and information studies. Then I was doing, uh, at the same time, a master of film and television and new media studies because I couldn't choose. And it was during that period that I started uh, getting teaching assistant jobs for introduction to new media, introduction to television. And uh, these tasks included, uh, aside from grading, also actually teaching or hosting uh, seminar sessions or reading sessions with students. And that's kind of how I became very uh, enthusiastic about teaching. And then at a certain point during my studies, there was a position for a 50-50, so teaching and doing a PhD project in film and in television studies. And our department advertised it as a position that would bring media studies into the digital age. So it sounded very, uh, very ambitious at that time. I think it was 2009 or something. And... Um, yeah, I knew a lot of people who had worked as teaching assistants and I was pretty sure I was never going to get the job, but I decided to apply anyhow, thinking that if they rejected me would be a good moment to ask for a teaching position. So I applied for film, a film position, and they offered me a television position. So it, it went really unexpected, but uh, yeah, then I got uh, an offer to do a 50-50 uh, position as a, as a scholar working on television yeah so it seems that you had to change your objective study but was it also a difference in the objective interest that you had so how did you eventually find the objective study that had your main interest well 2009 so this was already uh, the moment of like youtube so it was really during my my interview also we were talking about youtube and then they were saying well i was making this whole argument about youtube being film and then they said, well, but isn't it television? And then I'm like, well, we could also argue it's television. So it was, it was that time when platforms were coming up and we weren't sure, okay, how do we understand this object? What, what concepts and theories can we use to understand? And I think both film studies and television studies were kind of laying their claim. And in the meanwhile, I'd, I had a well background primarily in new media studies. So I kind of already let go of medium specificity to a certain extent and was just trying to grapple with uh, with questions around digital platforms more generally. Yeah. All right. So um, coming from that uh, position, that means that you were already working within academia. Was there one point where you were also wondering what the world outside of academia would hold for you? 
Oh, good question. I think I still kind of, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, of course, academia is very competitive. So sometimes the question is, right, how did, how do you even get in? Um, my question sometimes is, how would you get out of academia? Not because I, I want to leave academia, but sometimes I'm, I'm very curious to see kind of these amazing jobs students of mine go off to do that I didn't even imagine as, as possible. But I think over the years also, I did at a certain point feel a bit of a disconnect with, with society. So I think that's how I started to get more involved with uh, working projects with external parties, which uh, led me to become more active and take a leading role at the data school. Yeah. So instead of working outside of academia, you found external partners, meaning partners outside of the university. How does that work? Of course, we've already had a previous recording together with Mirko Schaefer, who also explained uh, this process. But coming from your trajectory, how do you find your own partners that fit for you and your research? To a certain extent, I would say Mirko is a lot better in that aspect of it. I think my uh, initial uh, trajectory to the data school was it was uh, kind of a practical course where students were learning how to do basic data analytical skills. And uh, Mirko and Thomas at the time were out getting project partners. So I, I entered that being kind of disappointed in the fact that we were doing these or they were doing these great projects with these partners, but they weren't translating that work into academic outputs. So I started and I came in and said, hey, we have these cool insights and we get this um, access that you don't usually have. We should really try and generate academic publications as well. So I came in with kind of that ambition. And then at a certain point, the public broadcaster Caro and Survey put out a tender, I think they call it, to which uh, my colleague, Professor Ego Miller and I thought we can respond to it. It was a question about uh, their legitimacy, which is uh, in the Netherlands, public broadcasters' legitimacy is based on how many members they have. But they were thinking, well, in this social media age, are there other ways that we can look at legitimacy? So we responded with a very uh, computational-oriented um, method looking at what's happening on the one hand on social media platforms, what kind of communities are they involved in and on the other hand also looking at public discourses so how are they being uh, how are they impacting uh, public discourse like newspaper coverage uh, about certain topics like me too and how are they uh, implicated in those discussions mm -hmm. so that that was kind of my beginning the the large uh, pretty for us a pretty large uh, project with um, with the public broadcaster and we got some uh, junior researchers involved and had that ongoing I think was it half a year or a year I don't even recall and yeah then you start kind of snowballing into into other projects within the university I'm also active in the AI media lab which is also a connection of scholars from different disciplines who try and yeah connect with the out, outside world by just organizing events like uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, the AI labs had this big event at the Spoorweg Museum. So, um, and they invite, well, we had a special section with the media and then people from the MPO, from uh, all different types of uh, media uh, industries, corners also come and attend. And you kind of listen to what issues they're facing and you kind of start thinking about how can you, yeah, work together to, to resolve those. Yeah. 
So within academia, there's also quite some partners to be found in there and also the external partners that come together to these spaces. But I'd like to go back uh, maybe to the main focus that you have in the way that you're approaching these potential partners. I don't mean to compare too much with the conversation that I had with Mirko, uh, Mirko earlier, but it seems that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the way that you're approaching potential partners has a very big academic component to it, that it's very much a general academic interest that's driving a specific societal phenomenon that, that you see occurring. Whereas in the earlier conversation with Mirko, it kind of seemed more from a, a societal problem-solving perspective, uh, whereas I'm kind of tasting from your side that it's more driven from this academic and theoretical level. Am I saying that correctly? I don't think it's either or, because uh, to a certain extent, lots of the projects that we, or all the projects that we do, we have to say yes, <laughs> and we're not competing with, with, we're not some commercial party just having companies come up to us and say, can you research this? We, there has to be a genuine uh, research and academic interest in the topic where I think uh, also, especially around AI and ethics, for instance, we have a lot of medical uh, parties interested, but that's not us, right? So it's not our... our... So for me, do, go, doing these projects, yeah, I think there should be an academic interest, right? So there should be something on offer that makes uh, it interesting for us. For example, with uh, DPG Media, we're doing a project on uh, value-driven recommendations. And I think it's unique. I'm working together with a colleague uh, from computer sciences that we actually get access to interaction data from Nupentanil. Mm -hmm. We would never be able, so even um, my colleague from the computer science, she's like amazed because they always just use like uh, fabricated data to, 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 to make predictions. But now you have actual data from users that you could, uh, you could analyze. Yeah. So it provides unique opportunities as well. So you're doing real life research to a certain extent, rather than simulations. Yeah. I, I understand. Of course, both complement each other and uh, you have to use both all the time. Um, but let's go a bit into how you as an academic always have, of course, a specific academic interest, but that you're also always on the lookout for potential partners that fit that specific issue. And quite often, maybe, uh, it might be the case that partners might not be so much aligned necessarily with the core interest that you necessarily have topic-wise to an issue. How do you as an academic deal with that if you've ever been in such a situation? No, it's 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 very true that uh, usually the, the the interests don't align entirely because at the end of the day they're not interested in an academic publication in some journal. They just want to re report with recommendations, and I think that's been the the biggest uh, learning curve for me as a humanities scholar. We're always called problem seekers. We look, we raise critical questions, but we don't come up with solutions, right? We never formulate advice. That's not what we learn to do. And I think that's uh, a bit tragic as well, because in the end of the day, these people need to make decisions. They need to move forward. So I think that's, uh, that's, yeah, I think that's an interesting challenge on the one hand, but at the same time, one of the reasons I, th I think, believe that these, these parties want to work with us is precisely because they are so caught up with uh, 
with their daily work, the daily rhythm, that they don't have the, the space or time to think more fundamentally about questions. So there is, on the one hand, I think for some of their issues, this need to also think more deeply about stuff, which they simply don't have the time to do. Mm-hmm. Although they're not always willing to, <laughs> to, to, uh, to invest in that. So it's, it's really about finding the right partners. And I think that also kind of shows in the type of partners we end up working with. Usually they're more kind of uh, socially or publicly oriented. Uh, yeah. Something that I uh, seem to recognize as a pattern right now in the conversation is that you always speak of a we when you're talking about uh, you yourself as a researcher or the research that you're doing. Would you consider yourself always as p- uh, part of a research team or h- how do you consider yourself as a researcher exactly? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, so now within academia, there's a lot of talk about team science, but I think that's exactly what, what the data school very much is. So none of the projects that we, we conduct there are done by individuals. And I think none of them could be conducted by individuals. So we're very uh, well dependent on each other, on our, our different contributions to, to the work we do there. I think every once in a while I make sure or try for myself to publish a paper <laughs> that's mine, that's really, and also I think that's always the papers that are more aligned to, to, to television scholarship as well, that you like once in a while you have this Netflix paper or YouTube paper that I wrote by myself. And then more generally, I always get caught up in these uh, these larger projects with the, with the data school. But it's also part of, I think, what makes uh, what makes me still in academia? I think uh, a, a long project like your PhD thesis was, I think, uh, to me a bit uh, lonely, right? And I really missed having people to to think together with. So it was, in that respect, also a conscious decision to want to work in an environment with multiple people working on projects and working with also external partners that, yeah, can actually do something with directly implement either in the short term or in the long term with kind of the the insights you generate. So it seems like a very stable sort of environment that you have also created for yourself or together with other people. For aspiring PhDs or for current researchers within media or uh, studies or cultural analysis, do you think it is necessary to be part of a team to build an academic career? Or can someone also as a loner, in the times of how you might have felt within the PhD time, also built such an academic career? I think it's interesting that you use the term stable environment, because if anything, we're the most volatile, what do you call it, the unstable entity, I think. We, we, we got out of a department, we're now within kind of below a faculty, we, we have people coming in and leaving, not because we want them to leave, but because they usually we, we work with a lot of young people who just graduated, so they end up, of course, getting really nice jobs. So, and we're just figuring out also, you know, sometimes we know a week beforehand, well, a week is an exaggeration, a month beforehand if we have a project. So we're working at a speed that does not correspond at all with how the university now functions or how the university is now organized. So we're kind of, yeah, pioneers in that respect. So the interesting thing is that more recently there's kind of this changing yeah, changing uh, atmosphere within the university where they're talking more about rewards and recognition rather than just looking at your academic output. So also thinking about public engagement and impact. Um, so that's becoming more important. And 
as a scholar, I, I believe that questions of digitization and algorithmization cannot be tackled without interdisciplinary collaboration either. So I think the challenges we're facing now require us looking beyond our own discipline. But at the same time, I think a couple, well, no, it was a year ago, I think, I went for my uh, senior qualificatie onderwijs and I submitted. And then the response was, we don't know what Karen has done because she does everything together with other people. So is huh? So my my manager actually had to go in and and convince them Karen does a lot, but indeed it's someone who who doesn't take credit for herself, but does that in a collaborative effort. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, there's this this idea that the university is changing, but at the same time, it's hasn't changed yet. So there's a lot of advantage to doing it the traditional way and just focusing on those high impact journals, going to those. Uh, career events, and I think what people don't recognize, and definitely the university doesn't recognize it, working with external partners is a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. There's a lot of administration that the university is not yet well equipped to tackle. So it's, I think it's so far more for the love of it than, than that it's actually actively the best career path you can have. <laughs> All right, but still there's quite some people that are thriving to become, well, academics or uh, at least uh, gather uh, a position within the academic field at one point, perhaps as an assistant associate or even professor. What would your advice then be if there, there is this ambiguity with working in a team or as an individual? What would your advice be to now aspiring PhDs? Difficult. I think it is changing, right? So I, even with NWO, they're nowadays asking for funding also from public parties to bring in. So it's no more just focused on more the traditional means. Um, so it is changing. In the end of the day, you have to be a happy person, I, I believe. So it, uh, yeah, if you're happy at the same, and again, these two things don't 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 mitigate each other, right? I I don't think everyone should be doing. Uh, research with external. We need those people sitting in the rooms thinking hard and long about questions. And sometimes I like to do that as well. So we need on the one hand that longer term thinking because it, it does drive different types of questions and more immediate questions than if you have more uh, more time and breath to think about something. So yeah, we need both. So I think play to your strengths and what makes you happier. Some people are not at all comfortable having conversations going to I don't know, offices with, with suits and trying to explain certain things and having that dialogue. So, yeah. Okay. I, I don't want to be to, to ask too much of an existential question, but maybe from your own perspective, how do you as an academic know what makes you happy exactly? How do you know what, what you want to invest in and what you would really like to research? How, how do you find all these things out maybe by yourself or within a team? Yeah, that's a difficult one, I think. Um, I think it's easier to recognize what you don't like. <laughs> I think it also helps. For me, it helped. I spent one year after my PhD at a different university. And that was for me also recognizing, okay, so this this is how it works here. And, oh man, I was pretty happy where I was, right? Or th that, that, that glued better with what I was doing. 
it's about what gives you energy, right? And what doesn't, uh, at the end of the day, do you feel energized or do you feel depleted? And um, yeah, I, th I think you know what you like and or what gives you energy and what doesn't give you energy. And uh, yeah. All right, clear. So indeed, you follow also, I, I guess, also your feelings and the emotions that you also have within a specific work environment. But what if that work environment has always been a university? So if the university has always been your work environment as, uh, let's say, a starting PhD, how do you know if there's not a career path for you out there outside maybe of academia? You don't. <laughs> I think it really requires... I'm, I'm surprised also just talking to, to people, it's important to keep people in your life who are not academics, <laughs> to just hear their experience. At the same time, you notice like people, I know plenty of people who've left academia from frustrations, a bad employer to just the, the work pressure. Um, but, so it's interesting to hear how, how things work in different environments. And I'm the worst person to explain because I've been stuck in, in pretty much the same environment. Uh, although I do think I've managed to kind of shift right from the more traditional way of doing academia to finding my place and building my place with the data school. So, yeah, it's about how you uh, kind of position yourself and kind of create. And th I think that's one of the things I love from the university I'm working at now that... Um, you have the, the room to shape your own uh, path. It's very nice to hear that you indeed have that opportunity to grow into such a, a person with a specific career path. But I can also imagine that when you are, let's say right now an MA student and you recently graduated and you are thinking of a possibility to step into academia, that there's also the thought going in your head with, if I choose for academia, is there then still a way out or am I just signing a contract for life within academia? What's your experience with that with maybe yourself or colleagues or maybe students that you have seen at this moment? Yeah, so my partner was in academia for a long time and actually made that transition to, to working outside. And it's not, it's not uh, very easy because you're very much pigeonholed into that's an academic, what can they do practically? So I think there, there are kind of these borderline jobs, which really uh, kind of, uh, yeah, bridge academia to, to more, uh, more societal uh, questions. And uh, in the case of my partner, that was Rathenau Institute, which is advising also Parliament on questions of digitalization and datafication. So that was a transitionary period in which you kind of indeed learn how to make, you know, beleidskeuses, right? Make this actually policy actually make recommendations based on research so you learn to and I think that's one of the biggest things challenges and things I'm still learning about is how to translate uh, the research we do into things that are valuable to others right and often sometimes it's just not having the right language or not thinking about okay how how things connect in a certain way which which they do so it was wonderful we had for for a period of time at the data school, a colleague who was also working at Dialogic. And his entire, I think his entire gift was precisely how he could connect the two parties. He, we would have conversations and I would be like, perhaps too very abstract and, and the partner would be very practical. And he, he was very capable in connecting. Okay, then here's the intersection. And sometimes it's just, 
finding common terminology or finding out that you're using different terminology for the same thing. I see. Let, let's also move on maybe to one of the final questions that we always ask, because we've moved through quite some things uh, today in this podcast. And one of the final things that you also mentioned here is that there's always this translation uh, going on, and that's offering PhDs uh, or MA students later on, if they perhaps choose an academic career, always the possibility to also go to the other side or plenty of other sites. The final question that we always ask is if you have any particular tips, tricks, or final pieces of advice for current RMA and PhD students, both now in media studies and cultural analysis that could involve stuff that we've addressed today, but also on a larger scale. Big question. Um, I think I'm the wrong example. Well, I, I'm, I'm learning to do this better, but I think one of the things I really have learned, particularly the, the last year or so, is, um, well, two connected points. One, um, kind of, uh, kind of a, a belief in yourself. More is possible than you think, or people appreciate more than you think. So you should just go ahead and apply for something, even if it doesn't match 100%. So especially uh, women colleagues and, 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 and aspiring PhDs, if, if the advertisement has 80%, you still go ahead and apply. Don't, don't be scared. Don't sell yourself short. So that's, that's the one thing. And another really important lesson I learned this past year was um, no one's going to come up well. <laughs> not not in my case or not in most cases and say Karen I think you should become the next dean or something like that right mm -hmm. that's only like I don't know who this happens to but basically no so you should if you have such aspirations I do not have aspirations to become the dean by the way but that it it makes a lot of sense to to give voice to that to tell people hey I think I would be very suitable for that job or in five years, I hope that I become the head of department or I really want to teach that course. So often we get caught up in this thinking that because we're doing a great job, because we're showing our manager that we can do certain things and have certain responsibilities, that that makes it that you're going to get a, a promotion or that they're going to think of you with the, when the job comes. But the truth is that's not how we're really works in the end. So I think the best thing you can do if there's something you really want to achieve to give voice to that desire and, and tell people, hey, I would like to become this. So tell me, what can I do? Uh, and please consider me if that possibility comes up. Thank you, Karen. And uh, thank you for this conversation. It's uh, been very uh, inspiring to have you here. All right. That rounds off uh, this episode of In Media Res. This is the second episode of three episodes that we have on the RMS Nika event. Stay tuned for the third episode in which we will round off uh, the complete session with you, in which we still go and talk about the positioning of yourself as a researcher within the field of cultural analysis and media studies. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.